$27 million. No, that's not what the grand total for the jackpot was in either Mega Millions or Powerball. $27 million was the sum of money that the city council of Minneapolis alighted upon in its settlement with the family of George Floyd, the man who died in police custody last year, sparking a slew of riots and protests across the country. Well, I guess depending on who you are, it depends whether you call it a riot or a protest. Those who thought it was an overreach called them riots and uh, with a great deal of support since there was burning, looting, robbing, pillaging, plundering. And those who wanted to um, sweep those little details inconvenient as they may be under the rug called them protests. But... uh, a rose by any other name, as they say. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three ways. You can either go to your native app store, the iTunes app store for you iPhone users, the Google Play store for you Android users, and download the show, the NPO podcast. In the alternative, if you'd prefer something a little different than your native podcast aggregator app, simply download the free Podbean app offered by podbean.com. That is the hosting service we use, and you can subscribe that way. However you do it, please subscribe. You'll be notified whenever a new episode is uploaded. And please, please leave us a review. The more positive reviews we get, the more readily the show will be found in searches. So if you have not reviewed the show already, we, we ask that you please give us a review. We would appreciate it very much. So today, the city council um, in Minneapolis agreed to pay the family of George Floyd $27 million as the settlement for the custody death. The council members had met privately and discussed the settlement, and then returned to a public session for a unanimous vote. It is the biggest payout ever in that city's history, maybe the biggest payout ever, according to the family attorney, Ben Crump. Um, it, It exceeds a $20 million settlement that the city approved two years ago to the family of a woman killed by a police officer. I do not have the details on that case. I would be interested to see how they calculated that award, uh, because I'm going to get into that in a minute, of how awards uh, for wrongful death are calculated. But the attorney for the Floyd family is Ben Crump, and he called it the largest pretrial settlement ever for a civil rights claim. And he thanked city leaders for, quote, showing you care about George Floyd. It's going to be a long journey to justice. This is just one step on the journey to justice. Now, Philanese Floyd said, even though my brother is not here, he's here with me in my heart. If I could get him back, I would give all this back. The settlement, according to this article in the Times, includes 500000 for the South Minneapolis neighborhood that includes the 38th and Chicago intersection that has been blocked by barricades since George Floyd's death. And they're going to put a massive metal sculpture and murals in his honor. The city didn't immediately say how much money would be spent on this. Now, I want to talk about this. You all saw that video, but you only saw convenient parts of the video. The video was actually a lot longer. And it showed the beginning 
of the arrest. It showed how George Floyd was not abused by the police and how he looked like he was out of sorts and was really overreacting with an unjustified fear that they were going to do something to him and they weren't acting in a malevolent way in any way, shape, or form, and he refused to get into the car. Now, months earlier, I had read to you the autopsy report on George Floyd. And you will note, if you go back to that show, that he had a cocktail on board of various drugs, including fentanyl, that would have been a mitigating factor in anyone's death. His injuries seem superficial, superficial subcutaneous bruises about the lips, bruises about the wrists where people normally find bruises when uh, handcuffs are placed on someone and they struggle. There may have been bruises about his face because his face was against the sidewalk. But interestingly enough, there seemed to be no injuries to the structures of his neck. Nothing that would indicate that that was the cause of his death. Now, they made it a homicide because there was um, involvement of other people. There was a struggle. But the word homicide, when used in medical terms, just simply means that other people and their actions may have contributed to someone's death. It doesn't make any judgment as to whether those actions were legal unreasonable, justified, or unjustified. So basically, anytime somebody struggles with the police and has a heart attack as a result of the struggle, it could be technically called a homicide. That doesn't mean that the officers involved are guilty of murder or manslaughter or anything of the sort. Now, it seems to me that the prosecution is going to have a very difficult time in this case. They're picking jurors now. They have seven seated, uh, and they have five more to go. One woman who said that she could be impartial also said she had a negative impression of the defendant. And so the attorney, the attorney um, for Mr. Chauvin, Eric Nelson, used one of his 15 challenges to dismiss her. So she's dismissed. Why they couldn't get a change of venue, I do not know. But let me explain something to you about homicide trials. Because, you see, this is something that I, I disapprove of with these attorneys and these race baiters like the Reverend Al Sharpton. They go and they sensationalized cases by showing convenient portions of clips and telling half-truths, inflaming people, and getting them to fully expect a certain result. And when that result isn't forthcoming and doesn't happen, these people begin frothing at the mouth, and they want blood, and they riot, which involves uh, other people getting involved in confrontations with the police, and further, further... De uh, devolution of the relationship between the police and the public and more cases. And it's just in a self-fulfilling um, prophecy in a never-ending cycle. When you have a homicide, there are two things that have to be proven before a jury. One, you have to have the method of death. As the famous pathologist Cyril Wecht um, once explained, you have manner of death, method of death, you know, a whole host of terms that have very, very significant legal ramifications. You have to have a narrative. So their narrative is that Derek Chauvin caused George Floyd's death by compressing his neck with his knee for an extended period of time. That's their narrative. That's what they intend to prove in terms of his actions 
the fact pattern, the actions of the defendant, former police officer Derek Chauvin. But before you even can reach whether or not those actions were committed, before the jury even can consider whether or not Officer Chauvin committed those acts, the first hurdle, the first burden that the prosecution must meet is that they must establish causation. Now, what does that mean? Well, you and I are confronting a man, and you shoot him, and I stab him. And they charge us both with homicide. And then the medical examiner says, well, it wasn't the gunshot that killed him. It was the stab wound that killed him. Well, then you can't be charged with homicide. The most you could be charged with is attempted homicide. Because the cause of death was the knife. Before Officer Chauvin's actions can be viewed by a jury with an eye towards convicting him of homicide, they first have to establish that Officer Chauvin's actions are the proximate cause of George Floyd's death. There is nothing in that autopsy report that I read by the medical examiner for Minneapolis that concludes beyond any degree of doubt in terms of medical certainty that Chauvin's actions caused George Floyd's death. No question he died during the struggle. There's no question that the struggle contributed to his death. But that doesn't mean the struggle was unlawful. And if the struggle wasn't unlawful, then the death is not criminal. They have a major problem with causation here. This is the big problem. Now, Chauvin and three other officers were, uh, were fired in this case. The others will face a, a trial in August on aiding and abetting. And uh, there's no... Um, word from the defense yet whether Chauvin will testify in his own defense or whether he'll be called to testify in the other trial. But that's what they've got going on there. But I just wanted to divert there for a minute. Thank you for indulging me. I just wanted to give you a little bit of that background because these things are not as clear cut as they want you to believe. But let's look at this wrongful death. $27 million. Now, I just told you that the lawyer for the Floyd family, Mr. Ben Crump, says this is the largest pretrial settlement ever for a civil rights violation. So I thought that it would be illustrative and informative to give you an idea of just how wrongful death numbers are calculated, because it is interesting. It is very interesting. Normally what happens is they take into account the person that died in terms of what did he do for a living? How old was he when he died? How many more years of life could he reasonably have been expected to enjoy? What did he do for a living? What was his earning potential? Because the loss of that earning potential is what his family has truly lost, in addition to the loss of love and nurturing and uh, parental nurturing in case of a, of a son uh, that loses his father or a daughter that loses his father or a spouse and so forth and so on. So, wrongful death. Depending on your state, I don't know, I don't particularly know what the laws are in Minneapolis, but depending on the state, in a wrongful death lawsuit, and this is from a, a website by a lawyer who's a trial lawyer for justice. Um, 
You may be entitled to awards for economic losses like hospital, pharmaceutical, and medical expenses before death. Well, I think it's a it's a fair statement to say that this is not applicable in George Floyd's case. He didn't have any hospital or pharmaceutical expenses before his death. The only pharmaceutical expenses he had, as far as I can see, are the drugs he bought illegally from his local dealer, which probably aided in his death in the first place, and that's nothing that's a subject of a settlement from the city of Minneapolis. Wages lost after the accident and before the decedent passed away. Uh, I don't know that George Floyd was making much work. Uh, my information is that in 2014, he had moved to Minneapolis to help rebuild his life and find work. Uh, soon after arriving there, according to this article on Wikipedia, he completed a 90-day rehabilitation program at the Turning Point Program in North Minneapolis. I assume that's a drug program. He expressed the need for a job, took up security work at Harbor Light, a Salvation Army homeless shelter. He lost the job at the Harbor Light, took up several other jobs. He hoped to earn a commercial driver's license to operate trucks. He passed the required drug test. Administrators of the program felt his criminal past did not pose a problem, but he dropped out uh, as his job at a nightclub made it difficult to attend morning classes. And he felt pressure to earn money. Then he moved to St. Louis and he continued to battle drug addiction. Uh, So he wasn't really much of a worker. And then in May 2019, he was detained by the Minneapolis police when an unlicensed car he was a passenger in was um, pulled over and stopped. So he wasn't much of a, um, of a of an earner. So I don't think we can use that calculation like wages lost in factoring in how we calculate this. Now, funeral expenses, if the survivor or the estate paid. Well, funeral expenses have gotten a little bit more expensive than they were um, when... Uh, I went to funerals when I was younger, when my grandparents passed away and my father passed away. But assuming you don't have a plot and assuming you want to get buried in a nice coffin, I would think even in this day and age, you could go big and $100,000 should cover your funeral expenses. So let's look at that. Um, now, you may also be entitled to receive awards for non-economic losses like pain and suffering, your loved one experience before death. Surviving spouses, lost companionship and protection. Surviving spouses, pain and suffering. Loss of parental training, companionship and guidance for minor children. Pain and suffering for parents who have lost a child. Uh, The financial and emotional support you expected to receive from your loved one may also be um, covered in the compensation. This could include anything from daily assistance to the decedent savings you would have benefited from. I doubt very much that George Floyd had very much in the way of savings. The amount of support each family member can collect is based on a few factors, your relationship to the deceased, the cost of replacing services rendered by your loved one, and the amount of net income available to distribute. Uh, I don't think as much of a cost replacing the services rendered by the lost loved one. I don't think George Floyd rendered many services. I don't know what relationship he had. Let me tell you a little bit about George Floyd if you haven't already heard. George Floyd is not someone who is a person that should be having statues and monuments erected to him for anything. George Floyd would be the perfect example of a person you would definitely want in a book about how to turn your life around. You definitely want George Floyd's story in that book on how to turn your life around and become productive. The only problem is that part 
is going to be located in the chapter that's entitled, Don't Let This Happen to You. This is not the way to go about it. George Floyd was a reprobate. He was born in North Carolina. He grew up in Texas, um, in Houston, Texas, playing football. He had more than his share of run-ins with the law. Between 1997 and 2000, Floyd, reading from this article, uh, 2005, Floyd served eight jail terms on various minor charges, including drug possession, theft, and trespass. In 2007, George Floyd faced charges for aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon. According to investigators, he had entered an apartment by impersonating a water department worker and barging in. He pointed a pistol at a woman, a pregnant woman, mind you, and pointed it at her stomach. He was arrested three months later during a traffic stop. And the victim, this guy's always getting involved in traffic stops. And the victims of the robbery identified him from a photo array. He was sentenced to five years in prison as part of a plea deal. Had he gone to trial, he surely, surely would have gotten more than five years. He was paroled in January of 2013, and during his time with uh, Resurrection, uh, which is the um, program that he was involved in, uh, in Houston, uh, no, I'm sorry, during his time with Resurrection Houston, that's the program he was involved in, my, my mistake, he created a video message for members of the community in which he addressed gun violence in the community, saying, I love you and God lo- loves you, put them guns down. Well, he should have taken his advice a little sooner, uh, and maybe he wouldn't be been in jail for five years for robbery by pointing a gun at the stomach of a pregnant woman. That was kind of self-serving. So now, we look at all of this. We look at a man who was really uh, a drifter most of his life, big man, six foot four, 223 pounds, big drug user. He couldn't have been much of a comfort to his family. He couldn't have been much of a provider to his family. Uh, I don't know how much suffering he engaged in since he was pretty much anesthetized by all the fentanyl and other drugs he had on board. So I'm not not saying it's that the man should be dead or he deserved to die, but I don't think anybody killed him. I think much of what happened to George Floyd is a consequence of the way he lived his life and what he did that day and taking all those drugs in the days leading up to it. I think you're going to find a very, very big problem with causation. But what this all comes down to is listening to how this attorney who lays this calculation of um, wrongful death compensation on his website, it's pretty hard to figure out how a figure like $27 million is justified in the death of George Floyd. And you know what makes it even more remarkable? You know what makes it even more ironic? The website that I'm reading this from is the website of Ben Crump, trial lawyer for justice. He's the lawyer that represents George Floyd. And I would love for Mr. Crump to explain to me how using the criteria he laid out that George Floyd's family deserves $27 million. That's the kind of wrongful death number I would expect from a man who was a brain surgeon or a public figure or an entertainer who earns seven, eight million dollars a year and now is or even a million dollars a year. And the man was um, 35 years old and he had 20 more years or 30 more years of practice. And therefore, he was going to deprive his family of twenty seven million dollars. I could see that. I don't see twenty seven million dollars for this guy. I really don't. It's only media and 
organizations like Black Lives Matter and Antifa sticking their nose in and a bunch of Democratic politicians who are fawning over this and looking any way to bend over backwards to try and show that they're not racist and they're going to make everything right, that they're just frivolously spending $27 million, which could be much better spent on other things. Does the man's family deserve a wrongful death award? Absolutely. Should it total in the millions? Most probably. That's generally what it is. But three or four million dollars would have been more than fair compensation for the death of this man. The fact that he made media and he was covered by every news agency in this country and without doesn't mean that his death is worth any more. At least it shouldn't mean that under the law. So, Mr. Crump, we anxiously await your response here at the National Preview Online podcast, explaining to us how using the criteria I just read, which came from your website, that you arrive and think you can justify $27 million in a wrongful death settlement for your clients, uh, the family of George Floyd. So for those of you out there, think about that for a while and see how it sits with you. doesn't sit well with me. doesn't make much sense. Now, the other thing I'd like to cover today uh, is our benighted and embattled governor here in the state of New York, Il Duce himself, Benito Cuomo. The governor was on TV just this morning saying he was not going to resign as calls for his resignation mount from all quarters. More than a dozen House of Representatives, uh, uh, Congress people and fellow Democrats have said he should leave his post. Women have a right to come forward and be heard, and I encourage that fully. But I also want to be clear, there is still a question of the truth. I did not do what has been alleged, period, he said in a call with reporters on Friday. He also added that it was reckless and dangerous for politicians to ask him to resign before they have all the facts. He has denied all allegations by the women, most of whom are his former aides. Cuomo's comments come just before a seventh woman emerged on Friday with allegations of sexual misconduct against him. In a New York Magazine piece, reporter Jessica Bakeman alleged that Cuomo had often put his hands on her and made her uncomfortable. More than 55 Democratic New York legislators had signed a letter on Thursday calling for Cuomo to resign. The State Assembly Speaker, Carl Hasty, said that he authorized the Judiciary Committee to start an impeachment investigation into Cuomo. And then Letitia James is also running the investigation, the Attorney General. But still, Cuomo doesn't want to resign. He refuses to resign. Seven women now. And he calls them uncredible. And he calls them less than truthful. Only he speaks the truth. This was the same man I told you the other day that demanded that Brett Kavanaugh take a lie detector test to refute the fallacious allegations of that lunatic blatant Uh, Christine Blasey Ford, who looked like a a valley girl who was trying to deliberately, with her vocal affect, create the impression that she had not matured since that fateful day 30 years prior when she was just a young, innocent girl and was ravaged by Kavanaugh, all of which was a lie. Her social media, well, I think so, Senator. Correct. I I might have, Senator. Please, give me a break. Give me a break. This is the pot calling the kettle black. Cuomo was the one that wanted him to take a lie detector test. We hold you to that standard, Governor. Why don't you take a lie detector test? 
And after all of this, after Governor Cuomo refuses to resign, and now a seventh woman comes forward on Friday, which is today, the hammer really falls. Both U.S. senators from the state of New York, Senator Senator, uh, Chuck the Schmuck Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Gillibrand, I'm sorry, Gillibrand, issued a statement late Friday, a joint statement, calling on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign amid mounting allegations of sexual misconduct. Here is the statement, quote, Confronting and overcoming the COVID crisis requires sure and steady leadership. We commend the brave actions of the individuals who have come forward with serious allegations of abuse and misconduct. Due to the multiple credible sexual harassment and misconduct allegations, it is clear that Governor Cuomo has lost the confidence of his governing partners and the people of New York. Governor Cuomo should resign, the two lawmakers said in a joint statement Friday. Cuomo has not responded to a request for comment by the paper. So now you have the two top Democrats in the state of New York, uh, after Cuomo himself, because the governor is always the top man in the state, now calling for him to step down. So I say you have the mayor of the city of New York asking for his resignation, not that I set great store by anything that comes out of Big Bird's mouth because he's an idiot, but we have the two senators from the state of New York calling for his resignation. We have 15 representatives in the House of Representatives calling for his resignation. We have the uh, state Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins calling for his resignation. We now have a seventh woman coming forward. We have an attorney general investigation into the man. We still have the investigation into the 15,000 deaths that he is definitely responsible for with his ill-fated and ill-advised policies of infecting nursing homes with COVID-19 patients by sending them there when he had more than adequate resources available to him in the Javits Center built by President Trump and in the hospital ship Comfort, also sent by President Trump, both of which went virtually unused and were totally underutilized. It's not even a question of if anymore. It's just a question of when. How long does he want to drag this on? How much does he want to damage himself? Get yourself together. Drink a shot of scotch. Hold a press conference and leave with as much dignity as you can while you still can. Because if you keep hedging your bet, Governor, you're going to find out that you're not above the law. This is not like when you torched your Corvette when it, it did broke down on you and you didn't feel like getting it towed anywhere. So because your father was governor, you just torched the Corvette and collected the insurance money. Anybody else would be in jail for fraud. This is not that. This is a series of events. This is 15,000 people who are dead from your incompetence. And these are seven women abused and damaged because of your salacious actions and your inability to think with the right head. But this is what happens when people start believing their own press. Cuomo was held out as a foil very effectively by the Democratic Party because the man they were running for president against the incumbent, President Trump, was a dementia-ridden fool, and he still is. If you saw his speech the other day, you could see nothing but incoherence coming out of his mouth. And you could hear nothing but incoherence coming out of his mouth. 
So they needed to have somebody on the national stage that they could hold up as some sort of effective leader. An example of what Democratic leaders could do for you if only you give us the chance to have power again. So they held up this idiot, Cuomo. And all of his achievements weren't achievements at all. They were all smoke and mirrors. They were all things achieved by the manipulation of statistics, by not counting nursing home deaths as nursing home deaths. We know this now. I've explained it on this show numerous times. I'm not going to explain it again. You can go back and listen to my previous episodes. But now the election's over. They don't need him anymore. And now the information's coming out. And now all these people that held him up as some sort of giant among men, as the quintessential chief executive of a state and a potential presidential candidate in the future, giving him an Emmy Award, pushing his book, now all have egg on their face. And they don't like it. And they're tired of wiping it off. And so they want the governor to go away. So, Duce, take my advice. Get while the getting is good before you wind up hung up upside down by your heels like your namesake, Benito Mussolini. Drink that glass of scotch like I told you. Go out there. Suck it up. Keep your head up as high as you can. That's the best you can hope for. And leave. And if I were you, I'd go take a little vacation in Switzerland because they don't have any extradition there. You'll be safe for a while. After three terms as governor, the highest paid governor in the country, I'm sure you have enough money squirreled away to sustain you in that lovely little country of cheese and cuckoo clocks. At least until the heat is off and you can come back to the U.S. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>